We are in this series on Sunday mornings as we approach Easter on... There we go. Previously, we were doing a series from the book of Ephesians, and as we got towards the end of it, Al spoke from the back end of Ephesians 6, which includes these words. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For, now this is what I want you to hear Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That is to say, in the challenges that we face in this life as Christians, it is truly a spiritual battle that we face. And this morning we're going to look at strongholds. We just quickly skipped past a picture that I put in the wrong order. There's a stronghold. And uh, what, that, what we're going to be looking at this morning is particularly the battle that goes on in our minds, which is sometimes spoken of as tearing down strongholds. And I will explain the reason for that soon. Um, I want to recommend two books to you. One is this book entitled very, very relevantly for this morning, Demolishing Strongholds. It's a book written by a guy called Dave Devonish, whom some of you will know, which has the subtitle Effective Strategies for Spiritual Warfare. And if when I've finished speaking this morning, you've got a bundle of questions about strongholds and demons and spiritual warfare, I heartily recommend this book to you. It's very uh, good biblically, very solid practically as well. And uh, I recommend it. If you don't fancy reading, because you can see how thick that is. If you don't fancy reading something that thick, but you want to look into things more, I do recommend the resources that are produced by Neil Anderson, which some of you will also be aware of, which come under the heading of Freedom in Christ. So there's loads of different resources that the Freedom in Christ ministries have produced over the years. This one called Steps to Freedom in Christ is a book that you... I love this, what it says on the front. Get rid of spiritual baggage that holds you back. Yes. Make choices that really matter. And uh, there's loads of prayers in here that you can pray and that will be really helpful for you in addressing this matter of the spiritual battle in our minds. So there's a couple of things recommended there. I also want to say by way of introduction that I am not going to speak explicitly about mental health this morning. And I realise there's a slight danger in not explicitly talking about mental health, that someone might somehow take away the impression that we're, we don't value a focus on mental health. And so I just want to be really clear at the outset that as a church, we uh, love to be able to work with uh, people who are supporting those who have mental health problems and ourselves to offer that kind of support. Um, there are people in the church who are taking antidepressants and it's doing them good. Uh, There are people in the church who have at times needed to take antipsychotic drugs, and it's been helpful for them. Um, So though I'm not going to speak about 
mental, and, and indeed people who've um, benefited from cognitive behavioural therapy and other kinds of counselling. I just want to say, that's all got a place and it's helpful. I'm not an expert on it and it's not something about which the scriptures speak quite as plainly as they do about strongholds. So it's not going to be my focus this morning, but I want to make sure I don't give a wrong impression. We believe in uh, attending to mental health, but what we'll see from the scriptures this morning is that there is also more than that. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. I was at a family funeral on Tuesday. And at that funeral, met some family members that I'd not seen for some time. Uh, and one family member that I don't see very often um, looked different. And it wasn't just the passage of time. Rather, something wonderful had happened. On his own uh, testimony... He had been habitually irritable, angry at the world, and unable to step outside of that to the extent that it affected his family relationships, his enjoyment of life, and he was regularly, I don't know if he was depressed, but certainly glum and feeling oppressed by the world. He's a Christian experiencing these things. And in January, he was at a small group meeting in his church. This is the other half of church than Sundays, which does us the world of good. And there, someone said to him something like this. Uh, There's a spirit of anger that God wants to set you free from. And to give you peace. And he said, yes. And over, not, not just in that moment, but in the hours and the couple of days that followed, a kind of cleansing went on in him, in which that anger that had been there for many years and had festered, went. And that irritability that had at times defined his experience of life, It was gone. And that's what was wonderful, and that's what we could see plainly on meeting him. He's apologized to his wife and children. (laughs) That tells you how profound the change is, if you're apologizing to your children for how you've been as a father. Um, That's what God's drawing our attention to this morning. His power to change us profoundly and indeed to change the things that may have been bothering us for years. Here's another scripture. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. I thought there might have got an amen somewhere. It's a good one, isn't it? The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So we've seen this slide a little bit already, but I want to say three things about demons, about the devil and about demons. And this is the ground that we're going to cover. Number one, casting out demons is a Christian thing to do. It's part of the Christian life. Jesus showed us the way. Matthew 9, this is all over the place in the Gospels, but Matthew 9 from verse 32, for example, says, a man who was demonized and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And that's pretty profound. Some kind of spiritual battle that stops you talking. 
And it doesn't even say how Jesus did it in this case. And when the demon was driven out, (laughs) the man who had been mute spoke. I don't know how you feel about it, but the crowd was amazed. And they said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. So Jesus is the trailblazer casting out demons. But this is something that the church does. This is a church thing. It's a Christian thing. In Acts chapter uh, 16, and from verse 16, uh, the story is told of Paul and his team in Philippi. And it says this, once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. And she earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. I mean, that's just interesting, isn't it? What goes on spiritually? I mean, quite why a demon would be, an evil spirit would be, I, I, there's some mystery here. But what was interesting is that verse 18, she kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. Um, I am no apostle Paul, but I have seen some things. I remember going to a day conference in a lovely manor house near Henley, which was organized by J. John. I don't know if you know who J. is one of the, probably the most prominent evangelist in the nation, who, by the way, is going to be speaking at Love Oxford this summer. And ahead of him coming, there's going to be some training. In, Love Oxford is the 21st of July. On the 20th of June, I don't know if you remember these dates, but you'll get more information about it in due course. There's going to be a training evening for following up all the people that are hoped will respond, we hope will respond to the gospel as J. John is preaching this summer at Love Oxford. It's a thing organized by J. John, a whole bunch of different people there. And I can't remember why, but there was some kind of provocation to prophesy to one another. And I found myself, spiritual gift operating, because I didn't know anything about this chat, I was saying to this um, middle-aged gentleman, it... What, something's gone on for you in which it's like the whole of the contents of a cupboard of provision have been stripped out and you've been left bare, but God wants to say to you, he is your provider and he's going to replenish the stock. Uh, at which point the guy let out a mighty scream, bent over double, fell over, and I found that surprising. <laughs> I later discovered when he had come back to a more normal way of being that he was, in fact, an Anglican vicar whose wife had left him and somehow in all that went on in that time, he'd been kicked out of the parish that he was leading as well and was on some kind of um, compassionate leave without any clarity about his future. You know, I believe God set him free that morning from some kind of despair that was taking hold. Casting out Christians... No. (laughs) Oh, Lord. Casting out demons is a Christian thing to do. Christian people cast out demons. It's It's what we do. 
What do demons do? Well, we as people are both spiritual and physical. Demons are evil spirits. They lack physical bodies. What they have are desires and will and unspeakable morals. Evil spirits. Lacking a body of their own, they seek out people in whom they might dwell. You read this in the New Testament. But I want to be clear about something, that the phrase demon possession, which you may well have heard, is not found in the Bible. If some evil spirit takes up residence in a human life, it's not there as the owner. It's not even there as the tenant that has any kind of right to stay, but merely as a squatter. There's no such thing as demon possession. It's not how the Bible describes things. Actually, some translations into English use that phrase, possessed by a demon. It's not there in the Greek language. The most common biblical expressions to describe this experience are, number one, being demonized. There you are. Demons demonize people. Demons are as demons do. Demons going to demonize. A second thing, a second common phrase is simply to, someone is described as having an evil spirit. And when that turn of phrase is used, often there's some, some specific name given to it. So someone has a spirit of infirmity. Or, um, you know, there's an, a, a deafened, dumb spirit. There's, but it's an evil spirit. It's a bit somehow more specific. And elsewhere, it also talks about people being troubled or afflicted by a spirit. And what we see evil spirits doing to people is harm. Their intent is to harm human life. They entice us towards evil. They deceive us into believing lies. They prevent healing. Their aim is to destroy human life. In other words, they do Satan's work. That is their aim. But you know what? Christian people cast out demons. This is a dynamic of the spiritual battle. It's real. It has these impacts on us. But praise God, we have the victory in Christ. And here's the third thing, is we can identify demonic activity. Now, sometimes these spiritual forces manifest themselves all too plainly. Uh, it's not such a common thing, but you know, sometimes you, things do move spontaneously. Um, the word poltergeist doesn't appear in the Bible, but that reality has been known by um, a number of people. Sometimes people find their minds filled with foul language and imagery that came from nowhere. You know, well, there's something going on here. There's something spiritual at work, which is all too obvious. Sometimes, and some of you may have experienced this, and in reality, some of you may be experiencing this even this morning, sometimes um, whatever kind of manifestation there is occurs when you're amongst God's people worshipping. There's something about our corporate worship that stirs something up and, and makes it clear. 
So uh, there may be some symptoms that are really obvious, there may be some symptoms that appear in God's presence. I'll explain this little diagram in a minute. Secondly, there is a gift of discernment. It's named in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 10, an ability to discern spirits, to see what's going on spiritually, and that's a wonderful help to us. We need that kind of help because demons' native language is lying. They are indeed creatures of darkness, meaning simply that they prefer not to be seen. So it's not straightforward to identify what's going on, but God gives a gift of discernment that cuts through as he helps us to see what's going on. Some other indications that there is this kind of battle at play are things that go on in our lives that we experience to be beyond our control. So, for example, strong emotions or obsessions that negatively affect everyday life and do not shift through counselling or through your normal kind of praying. Things that seem too, we experience as being too strong for us. In the same vein, addictions not just to drugs, alcohol, sex, and gambling, but having thoughts and fantasies over which you experience little control and to which you compulsively return. Generally being stuck spiritually, for I've just made no spiritual progress for years and years. Uh, I, I can't break through into praising God as I should or to praying as I really want to do And there's a sense of being oppressed that goes with that, that something's going on in our lives that is beyond our control. And here's a fourth thing. I've put on the slide common gateways, and what I mean by that is we're more likely to recognize demonic activity if a person has been involved in things that are common gateways to demonic oppression. So um, if you've been involved in occult practices and spoken words in which you've brought a curse upon yourself or invited Satan to play a part in your life, it might have happened. And it won't have done you good. Um, If you've been in a sexual relationship with someone who was themselves demonized, if you have taken the kind of mind-altering drugs that just bring all of your defenses down so that you are no longer exercising a sound mind, if you have experienced a trauma that has come to fester with unforgiveness, those are all the kinds of things that we have found commonly provide um, a vulnerability. Don't guarantee that there will be a demonic oppression. But the reason I put these things like this is that the more of these different kinds of things you can identify, the more confidence you can have that there really is some kind of demonic activity that needs to be addressed and cast out. No one of these things alone is going to give you that kind of 100% confidence that you you know what you're dealing with. But as you see more and more of these things, it becomes clearer. Okay. Now, in talking about all of this, I might be fostering a little bit of nervousness. Um, But as I said, demons are going to demonize. Christians are going to cast out. That's how it works in the kingdom of God. So now then, what does all of this have to do with strongholds? 
Um, What does all this have to do with strongholds? Well, I said we're going to focus on that aspect of the spiritual battle this morning, which is to do with the mind. And there is a key text for this in 2 Corinthians 10. There it is. Though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. That's where that word comes up. We demolish, what is it we demolish? We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And I've got an aerial picture here of a medieval castle somewhere in Hampshire. I want to explain to you what this stronghold means. This is uh, Portchester Castle. And I think it's wonderful that it has both a field and a church building and a cricket pitch in it now. Uh, But once upon a time, it was a walled settlement in which people live. There's a curtain wall that goes all the way around it. But if you look in the bottom left-hand corner, there's another stronger fortified structure. It is the stronghold. It is the keep into which people could flee into which people could retreat for safety if the curtain wall was breached. That's what a stronghold is. It's a fortified building into which you can retreat if the, if the invaders are coming and they've overcome the lesser defences. So this is the picture. This is that stronghold at Portchester Castle. The picture here is this, that there are some thought patterns, some thoughts in our minds that are particularly resistant to the truth about God. And for those of us who are Christians, though we've embraced the work of God in our lives and he's breached our outer defenses and he's flooded in and taken up residence in us such that we are in Christ and Christ is in us yet, there's Maybe not just one stronghold, but maybe a few pockets of resistance. And see how they're described in 2 Corinthians 10. They are specifically things that hold out against the knowledge of God. So let's think about what that might mean practically. There might be a stronghold of self-loathing and suicidal thoughts which resists the truth that God loves you. That's the truth. This message that has come to us of who Christ is, what he's done for us, has broken into our lives, and it's flooding and it's filling all that we are. He loves us. And yet there's this pocket, this stubborn pattern of thought that somehow is caught up with a kind of self-loathing, that says, I'm not loved, I'm not worthy, I'm, my life's not worth anything. Well, it's not true, but somehow the truth hasn't yet breached into that, hasn't yet broken into that. That stronghold, for some people, has not yet been broken down. Another stronghold, I mean, could keep going all day probably with different things, but here's a few. There can be a stronghold of self-sufficiency which resists the reality of God's power. She says, I can sort things out by myself, thank you very much. When in reality, the truth about God 
The knowledge of God would lead us to say, actually, his power is overwhelming. And we would be better off praying than working it out simply by ourselves. Strongholds of fear, which resist the truth of God's kindness towards us. Strongholds of compulsive striving, which resists the reality of Father God's generous provision. Now, these kinds of strongholds are in the mind. And I'm going to say something now which some of you might find a little bit, a little bit academic. Forgive me, it happens sometimes. Um, but I, I'm hoping that something really practical is going to come out um, as I say these things. It is this, that these strongholds are in the mind. They are not simply in our heads. Or as we might say today, in the brain. They're in our minds, not in our heads, not in our our brains. Let me explain a little something here. There is a strong relationship between the mind and the brain. But this same letter of 2 Corinthians, it says in chapter 5 and verse 8, that our essential self can exist without the body. Our minds are not simply some output of our physical selves. They are profoundly spiritual. The brain has its neurons and its hormones, but the mind is neither wired like a machine nor is it some kind of animal substance. The mind is rather a glorious union of reason and will and conscience, the capacity to love and the capacity to choose. God still makes people in his own image, and it is not the possession of a brain that distinguishes us from monkeys and dolphins but the possession of a mind. Now, in Hebrew thought, the mind was not even considered to be in the head. In Hebrew thought, the mind resided rather in the heart. And so listen to these words from Psalm 19. Who can discern their own errors? Implication? No one. No one has that measure of self-understanding. And so the psalmist prays, Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Brains can be scanned. In fact, two of our daughters have had their brains scanned a couple of times to try, because we live in this wonderful city. I I was playing football with a bunch of guys, one of whom whom turned out to be the professor of cognitive neuropsychology, and he needed children's brains to scan. So I offered up my two daughters. (laughs) So he's trying to find which bit of the brain did simple arithmetic. And I'm not sure, yeah, anyway. Brains can be scanned. Minds cannot be. And why am I saying this? If it seems like it's a bit of an academic 
point. The point is this, that we cannot gain a sound mind simply through careful analysis. See, when we think about demons and all of that, then there's something in this that goes, we know we need to pray, we know that's a spiritual thing, but somehow, when we start thinking about minds, because we live in a post-Freudian age, where we understand that there's a subconscious and an ego and an id and a superego and a whatever else it is that counsellors well you know, describe, we can kind of click into something other than praying. Or we can think that, you know, you need to have a counselling degree or something before you can understand the mind and, and that you need to understand the mind in that way in order to be of benefit. But the, the mind is, is, is inscrutable. It's not simply a physical thing. Now, let me take us back to Corinth again. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul describes what it was that he did when he went to Corinth. I'm not sure if I've put this on the screen or not. Let me read it to you. Oh, there we go. Paul says, there's a little bit before this in the beginning of 1 Corinthians 2. Paul says, when I came to you, I didn't come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Now, note how the victory was won in Corinth. It was through a simple proclamation of the gospel of Christ crucified. Simple statements about the reality of God's love and his power demonstrated at the cross of Christ. That was the power of God that won a victory in the lives of people in Corinth, a demonstration of the Spirit's power. This message is so simple and so easily overlooked. You know, there's, there are... Hmm. There are a great many... I said I wasn't going to talk about mental health, hence my... Because I'm not an expert, and I'm just a little bit hesitant. But I do want to say there are a huge number of mental health problems that would be, if not entirely resolved, substantially alleviated by simply embracing the gospel. If people just knew, as it says in John 3.16, that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. If people just knew that, the amount of good it would do to the mental well-being of this country. I don't know if you saw those in the news this week that 60% of Brits have anxiety verging on some kind of mental health challenge because of Brexit. I, I don't know. I hope you're not one of them, because I hope that if you're a Christian, you know that God is sovereign over the nations and holds them in the palm of his hands. No need to be anxious. I mean, I don't know how it's going to work out any more than anyone else does, but I do know that God's in charge. I do know that God cares for people. I do know that he's got good plans for us. I do know that he promises to provide for us. I know that he loves us. How do I know that? Same way that you know that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. His love's clear. It's been demonstrated. And this gospel truth, it spreads 
It spreads through preaching and through testimony and through witness. And then when we receive it, it spreads into every recess of our minds like the morning sun dispelling the last shades of night. It comes and it floods us. This truth that Christ died for us, it spreads in our hearts, in our minds, and it has power to demolish the untrue, ungodly beliefs that stand against it. And so as we embrace this gospel, our minds are increasingly set free and brought into alignment with this truth. And so also in 2 Corinthians, Paul can write, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. That's our reality. If you are in Christ, if you are one of God's children, you are loved with an everlasting love. God sings over you, loves you. You're forgiven. Do you sometimes get in a tangle feeling guilty? Yeah, you know, the simple gospel just, just washes right through that. You don't, you don't, what are you doing feeling guilty? You're a Christian, sure you've sinned, but don't you remember the gospel? Christ died. We're forgiven. You're not guilty anymore. Been washed white as snow. That's who you are. You know, this gospel means you matter. God sent his son to die for you and drew you into his family. This is not an accident. This didn't occur because you thought it was a good idea, but because God has called you. He's chosen you. In fact, the scriptures say he predestined you. He's been thinking about it for a long, long time. And he's brought you in because, because you matter. You matter to him. The maker of all things has decided that you matter. So, you know, if you have a problem with self-esteem, can I proclaim the simple gospel Jesus died for you. Quit with the self-esteem problems. I mean, just take them to the Lord. And say, this is, this, is a, this is like a stronghold in my life, and it needn't be there, and God, would you break in? Would you tear down this, this stronghold, this pretension that sets itself up as a lie against the truth, which is that I matter? If your life's aimless, you know, I don't know what I'm here for, going nowhere. Well, you know, God called you because he prepared good works for you to do. Didn't call you just to sit on the bench, to put you in a warehouse of a church somewhere until he came back to reclaim you, to take you to heaven. Chose you to to know his business, (laughs) to be part of his family and up and at it together with the Holy Spirit at work in the world. You've got a purpose. The gospel tells us so. He died that you might have eternal life. And that eternal life isn't just some humdrum life going on forever. That eternal life is an abundant life in which God's got amazing things for you. What I'd like you to do is to find that bookmark 
that was handed out. This has on it a longer list of statements that are true. I want you to take a minute or two just to scan through this list. And this is, before you start reading, just one, your attention for one more second. What I want you to do is to scan through this list. And as you do so, I want to say, are there moments at which you feel, you feel the curtain wall of the castle? Are there moments where you feel the ramparts, you feel the fortifications? That is to say, are there t- are some, do some of these statements in particular make you go, ooh, there's an obstacle there? Chances are there will be. I invite you to attend to that, to note it, and in a minute we're going to pray.